Dun, 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 dun. Oh, God. Is that, I don't even know if that's the tune. It's been so long since football it's started. One of them. But <laughs> I was trying to make I was trying to make my own music for the intro. So if anybody hasn't figured it out yet, this is still the foul balls podcast, but this is for NFL week one. So this is the first time that Matt and I aren't gonna be talking about baseball. We're actually gonna be talking about football. Uh we expect this is gonna be a little bit longer than the baseball podcast just because there's more football games usually than there are baseball games. And the way we're planning on doing it is we're going to go through every game on Sunday because those are the main slates on FanDuel and DraftKings. And just going to talk about the games and the players we like from a DFS perspective. I'll talk about some of the players. Matt's going to talk about kind of the Vegas angle and what the totals are, the over-unders, where some of the sharp money's going. And we're going to start by talking about some of the statistics that we're going to be looking at that we inform our decisions about. And a lot of this is going to come from football outsiders and their DVOA stats. So, Matt, could you explain to the folks at home what is DVOA and what's the significance of it? So I've been reading football outsiders for, I think, five or six years now. Um, I think they're at the forefront of the football analytics movement, although they're still not at all mainstream. Um, I think that DVOA gets mentioned a lot in DFS analysis. Uh, I was listening to a few other people's podcasts earlier today, actually, and DVOA got a mention at least several times in all of them. And there was no explanation as to what DVOA is. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that most listeners don't really know what that statistic is. Or if they have heard of it, they don't really know what it means. Um, and it's kind of just, in my mind, it seems like a buzzword now to just mention a football team ranks so-and-so in DVOA. This is where they are in that statistic. Um, so essentially what it is, is a per-play metric that um where zero percent is average and it's telling you if a team is positive or negative it can be a, for a player too but essentially what the average play result for each set of circumstances is so teams offense teams defense an individual player whatever um so it's defense adjusted value over average is what the acronym stands for uh, so it is adjusting for strength of schedule and then when it's um when you're measuring a defense it's essentially ovoa they just continue to call it dvoa for simplicity's sake but uh, when it's used on a defense, they'll adjust for the opposing offenses too. Um, the gist of DVOA is that uh, you're adjusting for context. So a 20-yard pass is not the same across the board. A 20-yard pass on 3rd and 10 is immensely more valuable than a 20-yard pass on 3rd and 30. Um, a 3-yard run on 1st and 10 means a lot less than a 3-yard run on 2nd and 4. It means even less than a 3-yard run uh, from the two yard line for, or from the three yard line for a touchdown. So the context for the part of the field, it's all factored in. The metric is essentially trying to estimate the value of the yardage gained relative to the spot on the field, the down and distance, the opponent, the time and score in the game. So all of these factors combine into one. Um, so it's a pretty confusing metric to know exactly what goes into it. There's a lot of factors here, but I think it's really comprehensive. Um, it tends to predict the winners and losers of games and the success of players better than almost any other metric I've ever seen. Um, if you go to footballoutsiders.com, you can see uh, they have historical data on how well this stuff predicts the actual results of the season. Um, so this is the metric we're going to use a ton of. It, um, it seems to be the most comprehensive and also the most useful, both in terms of describing what has happened so far and what is going to happen. Uh, football is a very random sport. And most notably because the ball is not round. You get a ton of luck just from fumbles with the ball bouncing around and everything. Uh, but it's also just a random sport in the way it's played. One play can change an entire game much more so than other sports. Um, basketball, you know, a turnover and a layup isn't going to change the game too much unless it's at the very end of the game. But in football, an interception for a touchdown is that's, you know, that's a ton of value going forward, even if it happens on the first play of the game. Um, so you get a lot of randomness in football just because the sheer volume of impact that each individual play has. And because of that, uh, you could have a 6-10 and 10 team that performed like a 10-6 and 6 team, you, vice versa. You could have an 8-8 eight and 8 team that actually played to the ability of an 11-5 and 5 team. And with only 16 games in the season, the schedule, the strength of the schedule is really hard to evaluate too, and it matters so much with a very limited number of games. Uh, you can't just say that it's all going to even out. Every team's going to play about the same quality of opponents because it's just not true, uh, especially when you're playing six of your 16 games within your own division. So DVOA is really useful. That's the stat we're going to be going with. And uh, hope that wasn't too long of an explanation, but I just think it's really important to sort of explain what this stat is and why we need it. Yeah, well, I hope the most significant thing that everybody took away from that, football's not round. <laughs> that's, the, that's what the takeaway from hey, I mean, should be. 
you if, know if it, you but... you go away learning one thing from this podcast, that football is a sport without <laughs> round balls. So that's what I hope that everybody took away from that. Uh, so basically, a DVOA is just an all-encompassing stat that is a really good way to measure the efficiency of teams and it adjusts for opponent. That's kind of like the easiest way that I would sum it up. So let's start talking about some of these games. The first game on the schedule here is we have Jets at Buffalo. Matt, what information do you have for me here? So the public, this is not going to be very surprising. The public loves the under in this game. Uh, That generally happens when you have two bad teams facing each other. Um, It happens even more when the teams are kind of known for their bad offenses. And I think that's sort of, there's sort of a historical precedent for that. The Jets have had a pretty bad offense for a while. The Bills have kind of been a defense first team too for the last few years. Um, I'm not necessarily sure that that, that this is going to be the case this year. Uh, we can definitely say that both of these teams are bad. Um, the Jets probably are a better defensive team than offensive team. The Bills, I'm not so sure. I think they're kind of just well below average at both, but not absolutely awful at either one. Uh, it does seem as though the Jets are going to have a really terrible offense, though, this year, and that's kind of why the public is leaning in that direction. Uh, we currently have 71% of the public bets on the under as of Wednesday night. Uh, and the total's actually gone up a little in this game. So there could be an indication that there's a bit of sharp money going on the over. I think that when you have a game with some bad quarterback play, you have more uh, more possibility of turnovers. You can end up with some defensive touchdowns. So I, I would if I had to pick a side, if I was making a prediction, I would guess that we're gonna we're more likely to see more than 40 points than less, which is probably a pretty contrarian viewpoint. But as far as the teams on either side, um, we've seen the line move around a lot. Uh, it opened at minus nine for the Bills. It's gone a bit above that, a bit below that. Uh, the public seems to be split on if they view this as value either way. Uh, my guess is that the Jets are a bit underrated just because they're such big underdogs, and I think the public sentiment on the Jets is really, really negative. Um, but overall on the sides, there's not too much here to look at. Yeah, so something I think that's really funny is just if you look at on Twitter at what people think about the Jets, like the debate about the Jets is not how good or bad they are. It's literally just on Twitter. Are they going to go zero and sixteen, or are they going to win a game this year? As if there's no other possibility for this Jets team, and they definitely suck. But they're not like some likely zero and sixteen team, like people seem to think. So for that reason, the public sentiment is way too harsh against the Jets. So most weeks they're probably not going to be a team to target. But I think this week they make some sense. So the Buffalo Bills. Uh, are, rank, are projected to be ranked 29th in DVOA this year. Jets are projected to be last at 32nd. But not only are the Bills expected to be the 29th ranked team in football, but also the 29th ranked defense. So they're not a good defensive team. They're still better than the Jets, and I expect them to win this game. But with that said, I think that there is some value on the Jets' side of the ball. So the Jets this year, they're playing McCown, a quarterback. He's not great, except he's not a total train wreck either, like, Ryan Fitzpatrick was a total abortion of a quarterback last year. He did nothing of note. And I think that McCown is going to make the the Jets a better passing team this year, even though they have lost Brandon Marshall. So where I'm looking for a lot of my Jets value is going to be at at Anderson at wide receiver. So Anderson's 3,800. I'm trying to bring up his stats from last year. So... He did have a few decent games last year. He was actually their number one receiver down the stretch of last year, even with Marshall on the team for a point. And I think this year that he's going to be the focus point of the Jets receiving core. So for the Jets running backs, I think Forte and Bilal Powell are going to split a lot of touches. So for me, neither of them are really in play. But Jets running back, uh, Jets receivers, I think Anderson could be in play. Uh, Curley could be potentially in play if he starts. Uh, Curse could be in play if he starts on the other side of Anderson. But definitely, I think that Anderson's going to be one of my favorite wide receiver value plays on the slate. And now moving over to the Bills side of the game, uh, Tyrod Taylor, questionable with a concussion, but right before Matt and I started doing prep and recording for the podcast, it was announced that he is going to be active. He is going to play for Sunday. So no concerns from that uh, part of the game. Tyrod Taylor, good to go. LaShawn McCoy is... He's not going to be somebody a roster this week just because there's going to be other running backs who I think are only marginally more expensive than him that are in better spots that we'll touch on later. For the receiving core of the Bills, uh, Jordan Matthews was the Bills' big acquisition in uh, recent weeks. They got him from the Eagles. He got injured with a chipped 
collarbone, chip, chest bone, something like that. Some injury. He's questionable to play. So it, even if he does play, it's hard to expect too much from him just because he hasn't gotten a lot of reps with Tyrod Taylor, quarterback. So if he's out, I think that we could see a ton of targets towards uh, Zay Jones and Charles Clay, the tight end. So I think both of them are good value plays from the Bills side of the game. And I think uh, Clay, Jones, and Anderson, those are going to be my three targets from this game. So move over to the next game now. We have the Atlanta Falcons at the Chicago Bears. Matt, what do you have for me for this one? So this is the game with the second strongest uh, sharp money going on. And uh, we haven't that, the Jets game wasn't the first. We'll get to the uh, top game at some point. But, uh, yeah, this is the game with the second most movement. So the public loves the Falcons. Uh, it kind of makes sense. They just made the Super Bowl against the Patriots. And, uh, I don't know, I've, I've heard some sort of narrative on social media how teams coming off Super Bowl losses are going to be motivated in week one. Maybe there's some data to back that up. Maybe there's not. I personally think that any data that would back that up would just be utter nonsense. I mean, that um that sort of thinking just – it doesn't account for changes in players. It's just – I don't know. It's the kind of stuff that ESPN likes to talk about because they want to talk about football during the offseason and they have nothing else to say. Uh, I, I'm putting zero weight into any sort of Falcons have something to prove after losing the Super Bowl kind of narrative. So let's just disregard that. We're not going to talk about that. If anyone thinks that stuff, that you've come to the wrong place to hear us uh, mention that in our, or at least consider it in our analysis. So that being said, um, I think there's a bit of a narrative here on the Bears being really bad too. And the sharp money favors the Bears, actually. So the Falcons open as seven-point favorites on the road. Uh, the line's now down to six and a half, despite 78% of the spread bets going on Atlanta and 65% of the money line bets going on Atlanta. Um, I think that Atlanta's just a bit overrated, and uh, the Bears are just a bit underrated. And for an NFL team to be a seven-point favorite on the road, it requires a pretty large gap in actual ability. And when we look at the DVOA projections, uh, we have the Falcons as the 11th best team and the Bears are the 22nd best team. Um, and the gap between them is only 9%. Um, so they're, it's moving across zero. The Falcons are at 7.5% DVOA in their projection. The Bears are at, let's see, I might have had that wrong. Atlanta's at 3.5%, sorry. 3.5%, the Bears are at negative 6.2%. So it's a it's a 10% gap. And 10% is about a point and a half or so. Um so that would mean that the game is pretty close to even after factoring in home field advantage, yet the Falcons are still seven-point favorites. And uh, one thing to mention, which maybe you'll get to, Greg, is that the Falcons have two big changes on their defense, and I don't know too much about the value of these specific players, but the Falcons lost White Freeney and acquired Don Terry Poe. And generally speaking, when a team sacrifices pass defense or pass offense for rush defense or offense, they're going to have a net negative because passing is a more reliable source of either defense or offense. Um, it's a more important part of football. It has more impact on the game. I think this is pretty um, self-explanatory. Passing is just, it moves the ball further down the field. It's done more frequently. Pass plays are done probably about 50% more than running plays. Teams just pass more than they run in general. Um, so passing just has a bigger impact for that reason. And the passing statistics, because of the bigger sample size, correlate better year to year. So we can be more sure that the passing stats matter than we can be about the running stats. So maybe that's causing some of the bias about Atlanta's defense. I don't know. But um, the projections have them, DVOA projections have them as a pretty bad defense. And I think uh, that, coupled with the Super Bowl narrative, is why there's a lot of value here on the Bears. Yeah, definitely. I just think whenever a team's in the Super Bowl, they, they get a lot of attention, and the next season people tend to overrate them and think they're going to be some team that's much better than what they actually are. Like, the Falcons were a good team last year, except they're just not expected to be nearly as good this year. Their DVOA projection is to have them as the 24th-ranked defense this year. And last year they had a really bad defense for about three-quarters of the season. They closed the regular season out as a decent defense, and they played good defense in the playoffs. And they played good defense for about half the Super Bowl before falling apart. And I think if you look at the totality of what their defense was last year and what they're expected to be this year, it's to me, I'm just considering them to be a well below average defense. So I do think that there's going to be some value in targeting specific Bears players. Uh, from the Falcon side of the ball, this is going to be really easy to me. Matt Ryan's in play. 
Julio Jones is in play. If you're going to use uh, Matt Ryan, I think it makes a ton of sense to go the QB wide receiver stack and play them together. And uh, Devontae Freeman, I think, is my preferred running back choice between him and Tevin Coleman. So Freeman and Coleman tend to kind of switch off in terms of which of them has the bigger games. And I still think that Freeman is just the better player. So starting the year off where they're a little bit closer in price, I would lean towards Freeman, but it's not my favorite running back situation to target. In general, I, I just don't love teams that split running back touches because it's so hard to predict which one's going to go off in which week. And there's usually just safer places to target and look for fantasy value. So my main Falcons exposure, Matt Ryan and Julio Jones together. And there's really no other receiver that I like. I know people were really high on Taylor Gabriel for parts of last year. There was parts where he was a really popular chalky play. I don't think it's long-term sustainable. He had a bunch of big plays last year. But I would prefer somebody who gets five or six targets a game than somebody who's going to get two or three targets a game and just happens to break a play out. Like, to me, that was just a lot of really fluky performances by Gabriel last year. So now moving over to the Bears side of the ball, because I do think that there's some value here with the uh, wide receiver core. Um, so coming into this year, they traded for Marcus Wheaton and, uh, Wheaton broke a finger in the off season. He hasn't officially been ruled out for this game yet, except he's not expected to play. He's doubtful. So for that reason, I'm going to assume as of now, he's not playing Cameron Meredith was supposed to be the bears. Number one wide receiver. He got hurt in the preseason. He's out for the entire regular season. So this means that there's just really underpriced receivers for the bears, um, so, Kendall Wright is at 3,200. He's going to be playing in the slot. The Falcons struggled against slot receivers this year, uh, last year. So, at a 3,200 price tag, he really doesn't have to do very much to hit value. And he's going to be another guy who I really like as a wide receiver value play for the week. I also think Kevin White is going to be the Bears' number one wide receiver this year. He's at 4,200. He makes some sense, but I prefer Kendall Wright for the price savings. And Kendall Wright also is not that far removed from being a 1,000-yard-plus receiver. So I think this is a good spot to target uh, Kendall Wright at a 3,200 price tag. I think he's a really good value play. So move on to the next game. We have Ravens at Cincinnati. Matt, what do we have for this game? So this game has very little to look at. Um, I'll just mention the narrative here because I guess that seems to be the thing I've been doing so far. Um, The divisional game, low-scoring, close game thing – um, that holds some weight when looked at statistically, but I think it's very, very negligible. Uh, the data shows that there's a very slight move towards lower scoring and games being tighter when it's two division teams playing. Uh, I don't know if that's affected by week one, but maybe just familiarity keeps the teams close. Uh, the Ravens and Bengals are similar to what they usually are, but at the very least they have the same quarterbacks. Uh, but as far as the sharp money, there's really nothing to look at here. So I'll leave this one to you. Yeah, this is another game that, just like that, I don't have a ton of interest in this game from a DFS perspective either. Uh, A.J. Green makes some sense as a wide receiver play, but not really somebody I'm going to go crazy with. Maybe he ends up in one or two lineups, but this is a game I don't have a ton of interest in. It's pretty pretty low uh, total, and it's, just, it's, it's teams that are very middle of the road. I don't really think there's a lot of upside here. It's not going to be a... It's not going to be a really high-paced, high-scoring game. So I think there's better spots to target. I'm not going to have a lot of exposure to this game. So we'll just jump right into the next one, and that's Pittsburgh at Cleveland. Pittsburgh, one of the teams that a lot of people really like going into this year and the team that people think might be able to challenge the Patriots as the number one team in the AFC and number one team in the NFL. Matt, what is the point total and the over-under for this game? Point spread, sorry. So the Steelers opened at minus 9.5. The line's down to, on average, it's about 8.5. It's a little different across sportsbooks. And just to throw this in here, um, you, you see this a lot when games have numbers that aren't key numbers. So one sportsbook might have a game at minus 4.5. The other might have 6.5. But because games usually end by 3, 7, or 10 points, the difference between 4.5 and 6.5 and just isn't that significant. So uh, here we have some sportsbooks at 8, some 8.5, some 9, some 9.5. Uh, the difference doesn't really matter here. So the game, you can honestly just say the game's between 7 and 10, and that's uh, that's the number. It could be anywhere in that range. It wouldn't really change too much um, with the expected chances of covering the spread. Uh, the total for this game is kind of high, and the public loves the under here. Again, this seems like a bit of a 
division rivalry narrative. And I think that a lot of people are pretty low on Ben Roethlisberger, at least what I've heard from other football pundits, because he does a lot worse on the road throughout his career. And he also does even worse against the Browns. Um, So I'm not really sure what to make of that, but the Sharps, I think, are leaning towards the Browns. You might see some more Sharp money coming in as the game approaches, but uh, there's really not too much going on here. Yeah, so I'm going to start with one thing with the Steelers' side of the game. Uh, So Le'Veon Bell held out in the offseason and uh, didn't even sign his contract tender. I'm not even sure if he officially did it yet. He either did it today or last night or expected to do it tomorrow. But he hasn't worked out much with the team in the offseason. He hasn't played with them uh, much practice or anything like that. And in addition, he is also coming off offseason. Now, with that said, Le'Veon Bell is – there's two guys, Le'Veon Bell and David Johnson, who are in the tier of kind of like how we view like Clayton Kershaw, Chris Sale, those type of guys for MLB DFS, where these are guys who are just always consistently going to put up huge point totals – Uh, fantasy point totals, and they just don't get priced high enough because they're so much better than any other player uh, at any position, really. So, I mean, if you look at Le'Veon Bell at 9,800, so you need about 24 fantasy points for him to hit value. Last year, he was at 26 fantasy points and that uh, per game, and that included games where he was coming off an injury, so he had limited workloads. And then also the last game of the season where it was basically a non-game for the Steelers. They'd already locked up playoff spot, and he just had two fantasy points. And it was really just because he was only in for a few plays. So he's somebody who, kind of like his baseline is somewhere around 30 fantasy points per game. And then you consider he also was a plus matchup against the Browns. Uh, it is true that Roethlisberger has big home away splits, but that doesn't really matter for Le'Veon Bell. He's been just effective on his throughout his career on the road as he has been at home. So Le'Veon Bell, the only concern with him is since he didn't get a lot of reps with the team in the offseason, is he going to have any kind of limited workload for Sunday? And I think it's possible. He's still a great play, and I'm probably going to have the second most exposure to him of any player on Sunday behind David Johnson. David Johnson's only ahead of him uh, for me just because of the possible workload concerns for Bell. But assume, I'm going to assume that he's at least going to see like 90% of his usual workload, and I'm going to assume that unless we get a definitive word from Tomlin or beat reporter that there isn't going to be a lot of usage for Le'Veon Bell. But assuming he is, he's one of the best plays on the slate. He always is going to be. And it's going to be really easy to fit him in because of how many cheap wide receiver plays I like. Um, Let me ask you this before you move on to the Browns. I think that's where you're headed. Um, What are your thoughts on ownership here? Because you mentioned Bell, you mentioned Johnson. They're the two most obvious plays of the week. For GPPs, who do you think will be higher owned? And I guess they'll both definitely be pretty high on but what's the number where i think it would make sense to fade them like is there a number for either guy where if they were certain percentage ownership and you knew it going in you wouldn't use them probably not because i never think it's going to be high enough like i'd assume both of them are going to be like in the 25 to 35 percent range because that's where they were for most of last year but then there's also going to be very few lineups of those that utilize both of them so I just think both of them are just such locks, most leaks, to hit value and just have big games. Like we were going through some of their game logs earlier. Like David Johnson, Le'Veon Bell, they're right around 30 fantasy points basically every And it's just going to be easy with some of these cheap wide receiver plays that we've mentioned so far, or that I've mentioned so far in, uh, in Jets and Bears games, where if you have guys that are right around min price, it's going to be easy to spend up for those running backs. So it's not going to be hard to fit them in this week. There's also, as of now, not a lot of good running back value plays because it's week one. There hasn't been a lot of injuries yet, not at the running back position anyway. So without a cheap running back that makes sense, it just makes sense to pay up for the top guys who I perceive to be the best values anyway. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So, um, yeah, I also, I definitely agree just based on what I've seen that most people will not use Bell and Johnson together just because that limits you to using really cheap receivers, let's say, and maybe even a cheap quarterback. And that's just not something most people are comfortable doing uh, in general. Um, yeah, I mean, I I would have guessed the ownership would be higher, but that's um, less my area of expertise. So uh, 25 to 35% with this many games on the slate, just that doesn't seem like anything that's too worrisome where you would even want a lower exposure to both guys. I think 
they both make really strong sense as uh, the best value plays. Yeah, and if you don't want to play Bell in lineups, uh, I also think in some spots it makes sense to maybe not play Bell and go with a Roethlisberger-Brown combination. I do think that there's enough sentiment against Roethlisberger and Brown just due to the home road splits of Roethlisberger throughout his career that that will make that combination go lower on than it would be most weeks. I mean, it's still it's a matchup against the Browns. This is still one of the worst teams in football. They're expected to be the 30... DVO has them as the 31st-ranked team coming into this year. Only the Jets are lower than them. So, I mean, the Steelers should still have no problem moving the ball and scoring points against them. From the Browns' side of the game, Kaiser's making his first career start. He was a second-round pick. I don't really have a lot of interest there. I don't have a lot of interest in the Browns' running game. It's another situation. Uh, Crowell and Duke Johnson are probably going to be splitting... Uh, splitting touches at the running back and then for wide receivers uh i think i actually i like kenny Britton, Corey coleman i like both of them a little bit uh so i think that if you want to go a full-on like Steelers stack where if you're gonna go say like roethlisberger bell and brown together just roethlisberger and uh and brown I think that there's going to be a point where the Steelers are going to score a lot of points, and it's possible that we see a lot of garbage time offense for the Browns where they're just going to let Kaiser kind of air it out. So I think it makes sense in a Steelers stack to throw either Kenny Britt or Corey Coleman in, just looking for those garbage time points in the situation where the Steelers just score a ton of points, and there's just going to be kind of like free-type plays for the Browns at the end of the game. And I prefer Kenny Britt a little bit to Corey Coleman. Uh, Britt's been a pretty established receiver, and he's had success for the last few years now. So the next game on the schedule is going to be Arizona at Detroit. Uh, what is the Vegas numbers for this game, Matt? The Lions actually opened as two-and-a-half-point favorites and are now two-point underdogs. So this is the strongest line movement in terms of just the sheer number of points that the line has moved. This is the strongest line movement of any of the games. But the the movement is coming what seems like almost entirely from public sentiment on Arizona. Um, and I think there are some injury concerns with Detroit that are affecting this also. But uh, looking at the DVOA projections for the year and looking at the Massey Peabody projections, which is another source that I think we'll mention throughout the season, um, they do a lot of similar things to what DVOA does, and they gear it uh, more for basically picking who's going to win on the Vegas line. They just bet on the games. They're not a DFS uh, service at all. Um, DVOA is just general. They're not really catering to one or the other. But Massey Peabody is also uh, less public with disclosing their methodologies. Um, I just know they have a really strong track record of success, and they have some really smart analytics people working for them. Um, so they're they're a company to value, or their website or whatever value them. Maybe not as much as Football Outsiders because they don't give you as much information. But I always look at both of those when. Um, looking for value in football games and both sites are showing the lions as maybe not as good as Arizona, but close enough where home field advantage should negate uh, the difference in teams. And I think the fair line in this game is probably closer to the original one with the lions as small favorites than it is to the current one with the Cardinals as small favorites. Um, So yeah, I won't put any weight into sharp money moving this towards Arizona. I think it's entirely because of the public. And I think uh, this is also a game where there's a pretty strong amount of betting on the over um, and the total hasn't risen. So I think there could be some sharp money here on the under two, just because this is a game that seems like a game that should have a lot of offense. But um, the Sharps are probably going to be on Detroit and I would expect this line to move towards them as the game gets closer. So... As I was saying before about Le'Veon Bell, the only reason he's not my favorite player is because David Johnson exists. I'm going to have more exposure to David Johnson than any other player this week. He's just a ridiculous DFS player, and he's going to be just, I'm going to have a ton of ownership of him. Like, he's probably going to end up in, I don't know, 60 to 80% of my lineups or so. I haven't started building them yet, but I could guarantee he's going to be my highest owned player. I'm not going to have much exposure to Arizona outside of him. And then moving over to Detroit, so I, I don't really have a lot of interest in Detroit stacks. Uh, one thing I do want to keep an eye on is who's Patrick Peterson going to be guarding. He's one of the best coverage players in the NFL, and if he ends up covering Golden Tate, which I think is a pretty good possibility, I think the ball is going to end up getting forced to Marvin Jones a lot, which could lead to him getting a little bit more targets than usual. So always with the NFL, kind of have to follow the beat reporters on Twitter, on kind of like Saturday night, Sunday morning, and kind of see like what the news is. But I think there's a good chance that 
we'll see uh, Patrick Peterson on Golden Tate, and that'll make Marvin Jones at let's see what's his price because I had it before and now I lost it. He is yeah, so he's forty one hundred. He had a couple of really big games last year, especially to start the year. He had uh, to open up last season. He started with a twenty three point fantasy game and then a forty two point fantasy game. So he does have that kind of upside in him, and I think that if he's going to be seeing extra targets, this is a good spot to use him. Just another cheap wide receiver who makes a lot of sense for value. So the next game on the slate is the Jacksonville at Houston game. This game is not going to be watchable from a real-life perspective. It's going to be a super boring game that I really don't give a shit about, and I'm not going to care a lot about from a DFS perspective either. I think the defenses could be in play, but Matt, what is the... I'm pretty sure this game is the lowest over-under of the week, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, and it didn't actually open as lowest over-under. Uh, it opened at 42, and the line is now down to 39.5, and, and that's with half the bets. It's exactly 50-50 as we speak. Um, half the bets on the over, half on the under. So it doesn't look like the public is really too heavily on the under here. It's just, um, I think Sharp Money has lowered it, and uh, maybe Vegas has just realized that they want to lower it. Uh, so I would expect this game to have the fewest total points for sure, um, even though the total is similar to the Bills-Jets game. It looks like that total for the first game is deflated by public sentiment. This game, I think, the total is just low because it's supposed to be low. Uh, the Texans open at minus 4.5. Uh, they're now minus 5.5. Not much of a change there. Not really a significant one either, as it's not across any key numbers. The public likes the Texans. I think the public probably sides with the under two. I would guess um, that the Texans have one of the chalkier team defense plays. Uh, aside from that, I don't think I, I think that you're probably right. There's not really much to like at all from a DFS perspective in this game. Yeah, I mean, I think the defenses are in play. There's there's just no offensive players I like from either side. I think. There's possible some people might want to use Leonard Fournette just because he was a good college player. He was a first-round pick, but that, that's just not something I have interest in. I don't think Savage is a particularly good quarterback. I think he is better than Osweiler, so he's an upgrade in that respect. But this is this is not a spot that I'm going to have exposure to. So I don't think we have to talk about it much more. The next game listed, Tampa Bay-Miami. That game has been canceled and moved. And then the next game that we're going to be talking about here, Oakland at Tennessee. This is probably the game that I'm going to stack the heaviest of any game on the slate. Uh, Matt, what do you have for this game? All right, so we've arrived. This is our big, sharp money movement of the week. The Titans open as one-and-a-half-point underdogs to the Raiders. They're now up to two-and-a-half and even three-point favorites in some places. Um, I think that the Raiders are just a really strong public team. Uh, 61% of the spread bets are on Oakland. Um and this is something that I'll mention too when mentioning the spread bets and money line bets for the whole season is that um, you kind of need both here. So in games where the spread is pretty close to zero, most people are just going to bet on the money line, uh, especially when it's on a favorite. So when the Raiders are minus one and a half, most people don't want to lay the one and a half points. They'd rather just take the money line because it, they don't want to worry about the Raiders potentially losing by one and um, then they lose the bet and you kind of get the same thing. It's like, oh, the team's plus two when it's on the other side. Why not just take the money line? Because I'm not going to root for them to lose by one point. I'll just take the money line. So you see a lot more volume on money line bets when the game's around zero. Um, so when the spread is less than a field goal, I'll look at the money line breakdown more. And so for this game, the Raiders are getting 61% of the spread bets, but they're getting 73% of the money line bets, and that's a lot more telling. So the public clearly likes the Raiders to win this game, but the line has moved four, four and change points towards the Titans, and I think it's just the Raiders are overrated, the Titans are underrated. I think um, both teams can be expected to score a good amount of points. Uh, the total's actually dropped from 51.5 to 50.5, and, and the public likes the under here at 54% of the bets, so I'm not really sure what that's about. Um, maybe you can weigh in on that, but it, at the, it definitely looks like the sharp money is, is heavily on the Titans. And this is the big, biggest sharp money movement of week one. Yeah. So, I mean, I like the offenses for both these teams a lot. Uh, I'll just say from a DFS perspective that this is, I'm expecting to be one of the highest scoring games of week one, certainly if not the highest scoring game. So I, it makes just a ton of sense to stack, uh, for DVOA, the Raiders are the sixth-ranked team overall coming into the year, the eighth-ranked offense, and the Titans, the 18th-ranked team, but the seventh-ranked offense. Uh, both teams below average defenses, Oakland 18th, uh, and Tennessee sitting at 27th projected coming into the season. So 
I just and also teams that play at a high pace. So I'm expecting a lot of possessions in this game, which just means you know more chances for touches, more catches, more yards, more touchdowns, more everything. So from the Raiders side of the ball, I think this gets really easy because uh, Derek Carr is ten quarterback in the league and really only throws the ball to Amari Cooper and Michael Crabtree. I'm pretty sure that of any team's number one, two receivers, they had the highest percentage of teams' targets of any other uh, team in the league amongst their starting wide receivers. And for the running back spot, I think that some people are going to want to roster Marshawn Lynch because of the name value, and people really like Marshawn Lynch. He's a Hall of Fame running back. He used to be really good. But we haven't seen him in the league for two years. He's priced fairly expensively for someone who hasn't played in a while. He is at... Where was he? He's at 50 more than I want to pay for him, especially because uh, DraftKings PPR uh, point per reception, he doesn't catch a lot of the backfield a lot, only going to be. And I don't know how often he's going to be on the field. I don't even know if he's going to end up being their number one running back. So for me, he's a total. The only players I've roster on the ball is going to be uh, Carr, Cooper, and Crabtree, and you could stack all three of them together. I think that makes a lot of sense. Now, from the Titan side of the ball, uh, I like Mariota's a good quarterback play. Uh, Delaney Walker is one of my favorite tight end plays of the week. And then at running back, I think that DeMarco Murray could make some sense, but he's not going to be somebody who I have a lot of exposure to. He's fairly expensive. I'd much prefer to just pay up for Le'Veon Bell or David Johnson if I'm going expensive at running back. And then I also think he's going to get less touches this year. I think Derrick Henry is going to be more involved in the offense. It's his second year in the league. He had a pretty solid rookie season. And I actually think that at some point in the year, I wouldn't be surprised if Henry ends up taking over the number one uh, running back spot for Murray on this team. And definitely if Murray ever gets hurt, Henry is going to be just a really solid play. From the wide receiver core, the uh, Titans drafted uh, they drafted Davis. I think he was the fifth overall pick this year, Corey Davis. Yeah. So the Titans selected him fifth overall. He's going to get a lot of touches this year. Uh, they signed Eric Decker. He's going to get touches. So I think the ball is going to be spread out a little bit, and it's hard to really figure who's going to get the lion's share of the targets. I still expect it's going to be Delaney Walker, and I think Eric Decker is going to get a lot of the red zone targets. So those are the guys who I'd want to pair with Marcus Mariota in the passing game for this. Uh, I still think, even though I think that the Titans – are a good spot, as you said, Matt, just for a sharp money type bet for what the actual odds are. From a DFS perspective, I like the Raiders side more just because I know where the ball is going. And I know that if it's a high-scoring game, that Amari Cooper and Michael Crabtree are both going to get a ton of targets. They're going to get a lot of touches, a lot of yards, a lot of catches, and chances for touchdowns. Um, This is a point I mentioned to you before the podcast. I guess we'll just throw this in here, is that it seems like, based on the analysis that both of us are giving, is that... Uh, Mariota probably has a higher expected output than Derek Carr does, uh, but the skill position players for the Raiders are probably better picks than the Titans players just because we know where the ball's going. Um, so even though I personally think that there's value on the Titans and they'll probably win the game, um, that only, I think, will manifest itself in my lineups with Mariota over Carr and at the other spots, I think that the Raiders are stronger plays than Titans players. Another thing about Mariota, there's very few quarterbacks that make sense to roll out naked. And what I mean by that is to play the quarterback with none of his uh, like receivers or tight ends or anything like that. And Mariota does make some sense just because I think the ball is going to be spread around their offense a lot. Mariota quarterback who runs a little bit and will run in a couple touchdowns a year. So for that reason, it is doable to make a lineup where you have Mariota as the quarterback and then don't use any of the Titans receivers. And then you could still stack him with either Cooper or Crabtree, even though Cooper and Crabtree are on the other team, since I'm expecting it to be a high-scoring game and more possessions, it just makes sense to have the game stack where you could go Mariota and still have uh, Raiders receivers in that lineup. So the next game is going to be the Eagles and the Redskins. I think I remember you saying that there was some movement for this game, Matt. Is that correct? Yeah, this game actually has a pretty... Pretty extreme amount of movement. Uh, the public is split here. 57% of the spread bets and the money line bets are on the Eagles. Uh, but the Eagles open as three-point underdogs and are now one-point favorites. Um, I'm guessing there's injury news here to uh, non-skill position players that is having some impact because I'm not really sure uh, who those guys are that are impacting the line movement. 
But um, this seems to be a combination of both the public and the sharps uh, going on the Eagles. And I think because of what we're seeing with the total movement, where the total has dropped from 48.5 to 47.5, despite most people liking a high-scoring game here, 75% of the bets on the over, because people like the over and the line has gone down, uh, that looks like the sharp money on the Eagles coincides, coincides with sharp money on the under, uh, so I think that this is a pretty negative indicator for the Redskins offense. And this is something we talked about before the podcast is the Redskins are pretty reliant on Jordan Reed for offensive production. And the Eagles were the best team in the NFL by far at defending tight ends last year. Uh, they put up a negative 52.8% DVOA against tight ends, which is first by a mile. Negative uh, 30% is generally an elite defensive stat, um, a defensive rating. Um, that's most teams don't. Most years don't have a team that even reaches that overall. Uh, above negative fifty is essentially it makes the other team's tight end unusable. And for a Redskins team that uses the tight end a lot, uh, I think the matchup favors the Eagles, and then the overall ability of the teams it favors the Eagles. So I think that that's why you're seeing the line movement here. But uh, what do you think about this game? So from a DFS perspective, here's the thing with the game: uh, Carson Wentz is a quarterback who I thought was a little bit overrated last year. But with that said, the Eagles did a lot to improve their passing game this year. They went out and they signed a lot of offensive linemen. Um, I think Pro Football Focus has the Eagles this year as, off the top of my head, either the second or third best offensive line in the league. In addition to that, the Eagles don't have much of a running game. Uh, they have LeGarrette Blount and Darren Sproles are the running backs this year. They're both very old, a lot of mileage, and I don't think they're expecting either of them to get a ton of touches. And the Eagles also signed Alshon Jeffrey and Torrey Smith in the offseason, which to me means that the Eagles' plan for this year is to really move into a pass-heavy offense. And in addition, the Redskins, let's see, last year the Redskins' pass defense, I remember it was bad. Yeah, they had the 24th-ranked pass defense in the NFL last year. So I just think this is a really good spot for the Eagles' offense uh, from a DFS perspective, their passing game. And... Alshon Jeffrey is fairly cheap. Zach Ertz is probably my favorite tight end play of the entire week. Uh, I think him and Alshon Jeffrey are both going to see a lot of targets. Carson Wentz is going to be one of my favorite cheap quarterbacks of the week. So, I mean, Carson Wentz with Ertz and Jeffrey, those are plays that I both really like a lot. And then from the Eagles side, uh, from the Redskins side of the game, uh, because what we just mentioned about how the Eagles are a really good defense against tight ends, I think that's going to lead the ball to be funneled to Terrell Pryor a lot. I think he's going to see a ton of targets. Uh, Pro Football Focus actually has him projected for nine and a half targets this week, which is one of the uh, highest target percentages of any receiver for the day. So for I think Terrell Pryor is really the only Redskins player I have any interest in, and I think that he makes for a good wide receiver. Uh, just based on the amount of volume that I'm expecting him to see for the game. But definitely, I like the Eagles side of this game a lot for DFS, and I'm going to have a lot of exposure to their passing game. So the next game on the schedule is the Indianapolis Colts at the Los Angeles Rams. And, of course, the most significant part of this game is that Andrew Luck has been ruled out. He's not going to be playing Scott Tolzien, starting quarterback for the Colts, a massive downgrade for them, especially because there probably isn't a lot of teams that are as reliant on their quarterback as the Colts are on Andrew Luck. So what does the Vegas line say about this game? Uh, so there's not much movement here. The Rams have moved from minus three to minus four. I think that the opening line came out probably well after Andrew Luck was all but ruled out of this game. Uh, so I don't think that the Luck news is having any impact on the line. The public also pretty heavily favors the Rams with 67% of the spread bets and 58% of the money line bets. So I think we maybe have a little sharp money to see the line move from minus three to minus four is pretty significant because of the uh, aforementioned key numbers, three and four. Well, three especially is a key number. Four is probably a secondary number after three, seven, and ten. The next most common uh, game-ending number is four. Um, so for Vegas to go all the way up to four is notable. Um, I think this has to do with the Rams' defense too, though, because 81% of the public uh, is on the under. The total has dropped half a point from 42 to 41.5. So I think what we're seeing is public perception increasing on the Rams' defense, and maybe just more people have gotten to their sportsbooks since the top Scott Tolzien news came out. Um, I think maybe just initially people weren't reacting to it, and now we're closer to the game, and there's just more action on the Rams coming in. 
Um, but the public clearly likes the Rams' defense, and that's the most notable aspect that's going on here. Yeah, I like the Rams' defense as well. Uh, so DVOA actually has the Rams as the second-best defense in the NFL coming into the season. They also had a solid defense last year. And on top of that, this is just the Colts' offense that's very reliant on Andrew Luck. He's their best player, and he's not playing. Scott Tolzien, uh, we don't have a lot of data on him as a quarterback, but I think it's fair to assume that he's not good, that he's a very poor quarterback. So considering that he's going to be playing one of the best defenses in the league on the road, uh, the Rams are probably going to be my favorite defense to roster in DFS this week. And in addition to that, they're pretty cheap. They're only at 3200 So amongst the elite defense in the league, they're much cheaper than the other ones. So even though the public perception is that they're maybe a little overvalued, the defense, based on what the Vegas line is. In terms of their uh, DFS price dollar, they're priced as if they're an average uh, an average defense, which isn't the case. And the reason is because the pricing came out before Andrew Luck was ruled out. So that isn't factored into the price because the pricing for week one comes out like ridiculously far in advance for football. So the Rams' defense combined with um, Todd Gurley, as a running back play, that's going to be one of my favorite correlation plays of the entire week. So last year, Gurley was, uh, in terms of standard league fantasy drafts, Gurley was a top three, top five pick in pretty much every standard league, and he just shit the bed last year. He didn't have a good year. A lot of it was because the Rams were not a good team. They didn't have a good offensive line. Uh, Pro Football Focus has three offensive lines that are significantly improved this year, and that is the Rams, the Eagles, and the Browns. So just how much the Rams offensive line has improved the uh, the production of running backs is very highly cor- uh, correlated with how good the offensive lines are. So this year Gurley's kind of fallen to being like a thirdish round pick I think in standard leagues, uh, like late second, early third type pick. So just considering how much he's fallen from where he was last year, I think this is a really good point to buy low on Gurley, who was once one of the highest priced running backs in DFS. And I think this is I think he's gonna have a really good bounce back year behind a better offensive line. So my exposure to this game is definitely gonna be I'm really high on the Rams defense and really high on Todd Gurley. Um, I'll just throw in a general football commentary thing on something you mentioned about uh, offensive lines and running games. So I think there's a general misconception about the amount that players are responsible for their own production. Um, quarterback sacks tend to be really, really predicated on the quarterback himself. And I think that's a bit counterintuitive. I think most people assume that a sack occurs because of an offensive line breakdown. And anecdotally, you can see that when you watch the game on TV, quarterback gets sacked, it looks like an offensive lineman made a mistake. But in reality, the best predictor for quarterback sacks is himself. The quarterback is really good at either moving around the protection or just staying in the pocket Um, moving up in the pocket, being mobile in that way, not necessarily running, but just avoiding the pass rush and getting rid of the ball quickly. So offensive line doesn't really matter that much for pass protection. But on the other hand, the offensive line is a lot more important to the running game than the running back is. And this is measured statistically too. And um, it may not matter in an overall sense as much as it does for short yardage plays. So basically the further downfield the running back gets, uh, the less important the offensive line becomes. So from behind the line of scrimmage to five yards in front of the line of scrimmage, that's almost entirely offensive line. Uh, the success of a running back from when they first kept are handed the ball to when they cross that five-yard uh, benchmark, that's at least 90% explained by what the offensive line is doing. And then when you get into the five and 15 yard range downfield, then it's sort of like 50, 50 where the running back takes over some responsibility. The offensive line is some responsibility. And then when you cross that 15, maybe 20 yard mark downfield, it's almost all on the running back then, which kind of makes sense. The offensive line doesn't move that far. Now it's just all about the running back speed and his ability to make defenders miss. Um, So the floor of a running back, I think this is the point. The floor of a running back is really, really heavily dependent on what the offensive line is doing. And the ceiling of a running back is more heavily dependent on himself. Like a boom-bust type runner isn't really worried too much about what the offensive line is doing. So for Gurley, if he's running in front of a really good offensive line, that definitely raises his floor a lot. It makes him a much safer play. And then, like you mentioned, uh, a good defense correlates with the running back because a team with a lead at the end of the game is more likely to run. So uh, all those points are noted, and I think it totally makes sense to combine uh, both the Rams' defense with uh, Todd Gurley at running back. 
Yeah, that's going to be one of my favorite correlation plays of the week. Uh, I'm, I'm going to assume, actually, it probably be, will be my number one because I'm going to have a lot of exposure to the Rams defense, and then it just makes a ton of sense to use Gurley in most spots wherever I'm going to be using the Rams defense. So the next game on the slate is the Seahawks at the Packers. So one injury note that came out today was that uh, Thomas Rawls got hurt for what feels like the 10th time over the last two years. Rawls is always hurt. So he's listed as questionable for Sunday. If he's not able to play, there could be some value that opens up at the Packers running back spot, the uh, Seahawks running back spot. So there really aren't any cheap running backs to play for the week. And it's possible that uh, C.J. Procease could end up starting at running back. It's possible that Carson can end up starting at running back for the Seahawks. Carson's at 3,000. Uh, Procease is at 4,100. He had a couple monster games last year as a starting running back. Eddie Lacy's also in the mix at 5,000. I really hope he doesn't start if Rawls is out because he's not somebody I'd want to roster at all. So if Rawls is ruled out and either Procease or Carson are starting, I think there's a lot of value on those guys. We don't know as of now, but what is the uh, what's the total and who's favored in this game, Matt? Um, the Packers actually have the highest implied point total of the week for any team. Uh, this game has a bit higher of an over-under than the Raiders-Titans game does. Uh, it's up to 51 with some juice on the over, so 51 and a half. Uh, that Titans-Raiders game is a half point to a point lower. I think it obviously makes sense with Russell Wilson going against Aaron Rodgers, and uh, the Packers don't have that good of a defense. I was looking at pace statistics from last year. These teams don't actually play that fast. They're just really effective when they throw, uh, especially the Packers, obviously. Um, as far as the movement on the spreads, we're seeing 60% of the action going on the Packers for spread bets, and then 60% of the action going on the Seahawks for money line bets. The line has remained at three, three and change for the entirety of the preseason and up to now. So there's absolutely no sharp money coming in whatsoever on either side. I think that Packers by a field goal is the fair line, and everyone views it as the fair line. Uh, but the total has gone from 49 to 51 and 51 plus uh, with 65% of the bets on the over. So I think the public likes this to be a point scoring game. I think some of that comes from a lot of DFS analysis over the past couple weeks that uh, I think a lot of DFS pundits like the offenses in this game. But I think the sharp money kind of likes the over too. I think that the initial line was just put a little bit low. And I think this could, this could ultimately end up being a really strong shootout and, um, I'm not sure if I like it better than the Raiders-Titans game for points, uh, but I definitely think it's a spot where there could be a lot of point scoring and a ton of offensive opportunity. Uh, so what's your take on this game? Yes, so especially now that Rawls questionable, I think this could end up leading to the Seahawks going to the air more, especially even if Rawls does end up playing. I would assume that he's going to be below 100%, and I think that Russell Wilson people maybe will be a little bit less inclined to play him because he struggled a little bit last year. But a lot of it was because he was dealing with a knee injury. He was wearing a big bulky brace, and that limited how mobile he was. A lot of his uh, game comes from that mobility. So, But I still think Russ Wilson, I think, is a really strong play. Overall, I really like the stack this game. Uh, I think that this is probably my second favorite game stack behind the Raiders-Titans game. So we have Russell Wilson, I think, is definitely in play at 6,900. Doug Baldwin at 6,700. And then I think another uh, quarterback-wide receiver combination that I think makes sense but is going to be fairly low-owned is going to be Russell Wilson and Paul Richardson. So I'm expecting Richardson to start and be the number two receiver for the Seahawks this year. Uh, the Seahawks cut curse in the offseason and ended up going to the Jets, and a big reason was because of how well Richardson played in the playoffs last year. And Richardson also looked really good in terms of, I don't think that it was like fluky performances. Like to me, it looked like he was really athletic. He made a lot of really impressive catches. So I think him at 3,700, like I just think that he's a solid player and I think he's better than what that price tag is. So I think that uh, Russell Wilson paired with Richardson makes a lot of sense. And then from the Packers side of the ball, just Aaron Rodgers combined with Jordy Nelson is always going to be in play. Uh, Devontae Adams is a good play. Randall Cobb, like all these guys. I, I think are solid plays. Um, it's hard to know exactly where the targets are going to go, but I'm I'm going to assume that it's going to be most of going to Jordy Nelson. I don't really have any interest in the Packers running game. Uh, I think that Montgomery is kind of a nice like gadget type player out of the backfield, wide receiver converted to running back. But with that said, I I'm not going to have any exposure to him. It's going to be mostly uh, Rodgers and Nelson from the Packers side of the ball. So I think that, like, 
Rogers, Nelson, and uh, and Paul Richardson, I think make a lot of sense as like a game stack that people might not really be on. And I think Richardson is the low owned player in this game that I think has a ton of GPP upside. So the next game on the slate. Panthers at 49ers. The Panthers were one of the most disappointing teams in the NFL last year. A big reason was because Cam Newton coming off an MVP year really had a drop-off in performance. Matt, what do the Vegas lines have to say about this one? Well, let me ask you this first. Have the Niners named a starting quarterback yet? Um, I'm pretty sure it's Hoyer. Okay. Um, I think that with the uncertain, or I guess what the public perceives as a murky quarterback situation, the line has moved towards Carolina. So I'll just give you the raw data first. Uh, 80% of the spread bets are going on the Panthers, 59% of the money line bets, but not so significant because the line is above three. So we're just looking at the spread bets for an indication of what the public's doing here. Uh, But the line opened at three and a half, minus three and a half for Carolina. It's now up to minus five and a half. The total has been around 48, gone down to 47 and a half with more people taking the under so it's clear that most people really like Carolina to keep this game low scoring or at least to limit San Francisco's offense. I think Carolina's defense is just where the public is leaning here. I don't know if this necessarily says anything about how people view the Panthers offense and Cam Newton, but uh, it's pretty obvious that the public loves the Panthers defense. And um, I think that because it's this uh, line movement comes with such, such strong public action, uh, we could see some sharp money coming in on the Niners closer to game time. Uh, Sports Insights is showing a sharp action indicator on the Niners, which sort of just means that people that they view as sharp bettors have made bets on them, uh, but the line movement hasn't hasn't shown that yet. So maybe that'll just come closer to Sunday. But at this point, it does seem like public Carolina and then maybe a little bit of sharp action on the Niners. Yeah, from a DFS perspective, I, just, I don't think that there's anybody with a roster on the 49ers that I have interest in. I'm not going to have any exposure to them. From from the Panthers' side of the ball, though, I do think that there's a lot of guys who are in play that are going to be interesting fantasy options. So Cam Newton is going to be just a really strong quarterback play. You could play him uh, without any of his receivers also just because he has some of the running upside. Although with that said, I am a little wary of that strategy this year versus other years just because I think the biggest reason for the downtick in Cam Newton's performance last year was his injuries. So I think the number one way for the Panthers to protect him this year and be better is they're going to say to Cam, hey, we're going to have you run less. And the number one way that I think they're going to do that is a lot of those plays that were designed runs for Cam Newton, I think are going to be dump passes to Christian McCaffrey. So I like McCaffrey a lot as a DFS prospect. Uh, at 5,400, I think he makes a little bit of sense. And then... Uh, uh, and then Benjamin is what's his price? Uh, so Calvin Benjamin is priced at fifty nine hundred. I think that assuming that Cam Newton is going to get back to his MVP form, uh, I think Benjamin now is now two years removed from that ACL injury. I'm expecting a really big year from him. And then of course Greg Olson is always one of the top tight ends. He's always one of the high scoring tight ends. It's very hard to get guaranteed production from a tight end. So if you want to pay up at that. Uh, at the tight end position, Greg Olson's going to be the way to go at 6,200. But there's uh, there's definitely a lot of DFS upside in the Panthers' side of this game, and they're a team that I think is going to bounce back from their disappointing 2017 season. So let's see, for 2016, DVOA has them as the 13th-ranked team. They have them as like a 50-50 chance to make the playoffs. Uh, I'm a little bit more bullish on them than that. I think that I think they'll be closer to what they were in 2015 than what they were in 2016. So the next game on the schedule is actually the last game for Sunday night, the last game of the slate, and that is Giants at Cowboys. Of course, the most pertinent news for this game is that Ezekiel Elliott, the six-game suspension, has been upheld, but he's going to play in week one anyway. I don't know how that happened. I don't understand any of the NFL's stupid, goofy processes. They make no sense to me. Uh, It's generally just a poorly run business, the NFL. It's a good thing that gambling exists because or else no one would give a shit about their terrible business. So Giants, Cowboys, what do we got, Matt? So let me just explain something about the makeup of these teams before before I talk about the sharp money. Um, I think most people are aware that the Cowboys are the Cowboys and Giants are both good teams. The Cowboys are a better offensive team. The Giants are a better defensive team. Therefore, they're pretty even, um, and they are pretty even. But 
What we have here in terms of DVOA projections is the Cowboys are projected to be the fourth best offense. The Giants are projected the fourth best defense. The Cowboys are 13th on defense. The Giants are 18th on offense. So almost a wash there. And then the Giants are projected better on special teams by a decent amount. Um, So you could look at these and say dead even teams. But the issue is that most people don't realize that offense is substantially more important than defense. Uh, When Football Outsiders makes their overall, when they weigh their overall ratings, they will do an eight-part system where it's four parts offense, three parts defense, one part special teams. And that's because that's how much predictive power there is from each aspect of the game. So special teams, obviously the least important. It it occurs the least often uh, relative to offense and defense. But it may surprise some people to hear that offense matters more than defense, especially with the old adage, defense wins championships. Uh, The reason for this is that the offense is in control. The offense starts with the ball. Um, It's not like baseball where the defense starts with the ball. The pitcher's throwing it. Basketball is pretty fluid back and forth. Um, In football, though, the offense is dictating the pace of the action, and this does tend to mean that a team with a good offense and a bad defense will, in the long run, outperform a team with a good defense and a bad offense because offense just has more impact on the overall game. Um, And because of this, you also get more randomness in defensive statistics because they're more dependent on what the the opposition is doing. Uh, So the Giants were a great defense last year, but it's more likely that the Giants will regress on defense than it is that a great offensive team will regress on offense. Uh, So there is a lot of reason to be optimistic about the Giants' defense, but I think that needs to be a sort of cautious optimism just because it's it's hard for a team to be really, really good on defense in consecutive years uh, because a lot of the first year can be because of luck. Uh, All right, so having said that, let's talk about the line for the game. Um, This line has moved all over the place, uh, and it's because largely of what you mentioned, the Ezekiel Elliott news. So the Cowboys opened as four-and-a-half-point favorites. Uh, I think they had initially gone up to about six-point favorites, and I think that this was largely because of sharp money. Um, the public is on the Giants at 63% of the spread bets, 69% of the money line bets. And I think that the Sharps were initially just all over Dallas because um, for the aforementioned reasons, Dallas is a better offense than the Giants. They're probably a slightly better team. They have home field advantage. Um, the fair line is probably somewhere in that neighborhood in the six or so point range and four was just a bit low. Uh, but now we have two pieces of news to look at. Uh, the line started moving down because Elliott was initially ruled out. And then we have Odell Beckham, who's questionable for the game. I know, Greg, you said before the podcast, you expect him to play. But there's some, even if it's a small chance, there's some chance that he doesn't end up playing. Um, But even if Beckham's in, the line has now gone back down to lower than where it initially opened. And Elliott is going to be in the lineup. So it's clear that the public betting on the Giants has dropped this line a great deal. And I think that there might now be some value on the Cowboys. Um, the total has been steady. The public is split on the total. So there's nothing to see on the over under, but what's very obvious is that the public likes the giants. And, uh, that's the most, that's the biggest takeaway from this game. Yeah. So I actually, I don't really love this game from a DFS standpoint. Uh, one thing you did say the Odell Beckham injury, which I forgot to bring up from the top is he listed, he is listed as questionable. He didn't practice today, but his comments to the media, kind of implied that he is planning on playing on Sunday, that he's going to play. I would be pretty surprised if Beckham ends up sitting out Sunday night. Giants opener game against the Cowboys, obviously one of their most important games of the season. So one thing that I think is very important for the Cowboys this year is earlier I was talking about some of the pro football focus, the most improved offensive lines of the season. Well, they have the Cowboys as the offensive line that got the worst in the offseason. So for that reason, as good as Ezekiel Elliott was last year, and we talked about how correlated uh, offensive performance is to the offensive line and how important running back performance in particular is to the offensive lines, I think he's going to struggle a lot this year compared to last year because of that downgrade. The Giants, even though last year they were the second-best offensive uh, defensive football and we're expecting them to be a little bit worse this year, they should still be a top-10 defense at worst, still maybe even in the top-5 uh Football Outsiders has them as the fourth-ranked defense coming into the year. So I don't have a ton of interest from the Cowboys' offensive side of this game. Uh, I think one guy who maybe makes some sense as a value play is going to be Cole Beasley in the slot. Uh, I think that he's going to be seeing more targets this year. But then from the Giants' side of the game, uh, 
still not really a ton of interest. I think it does make some sense to use Eli with uh, Beckham combinations, assuming Beckham plays, just because Beckham is still one of the most expensive receiver, uh, one of the most explosive receivers in the NFL, and has a lot of big play potential. He's one of the best overall players in the league. But this is overall not a game I'm super excited about from a DFS perspective. I'm not going to have a lot of exposure to it. So I think this is by far our longest podcast just because the way we're going through all these football games. And that's everything for week one. Uh, so anybody who listens to this, there's any kind of feedback. If there's anything they want us to talk about going forward or have any questions for the weeks going in, definitely reach out to me on Twitter at GRMBergDFS or Matt at Preaching Sense. Uh, just any any sort of feedback you have, anything that you want us to talk about uh, in terms of any kind of strategies, anything like that, hit us up about that and we'll get back. Uh, so for tomorrow, we'll be back to talking about baseball like regular and then just every Thursday we'll be doing one of these football podcasts. Uh, depending how injury news is, maybe we'll start doing them on Fridays because I, I don't know if every week it'll make sense to do it, uh, record Wednesday night to release Thursday, because there could be some times where we just don't have enough injury information. So we'll play it a little bit by ear, but I hope everybody enjoyed this. We'll be doing the football podcast weekly, and we'll be back tomorrow.